Hello, and welcome to The Real, the podcast for culture and entertainment media. I'm your host, Mark Olson. On today's episode... I do think it's interesting, this approach in inclusive storytelling. She hopes that this movie leads to more stories, more kinds of stories, stories where somebody's Asian heritage or their identity, whatever it be, is allowed to just be a normal part of their life, isn't the focus of the story. It isn't the cause of great grief or struggle, but is just part of it. That's coming up later in the show. Today, we're discussing two specific films we wanted to highlight. They're both generating some buzz in the entertainment world, and so we wanted to dive into both of them. Later, we'll have a special one-on-one chat with entertainment reporter Jen Yamato about the Netflix film series To All the Boys. But first, I'm here with entertainment business reporter Ryan Fonder to take a look at a very different kind of movie. Ryan, thanks as always for being here. Hey, Mark. And now, over the long President's Day weekend, Paramount's Sonic the Hedgehog opened, and it exceeded expectations at the box office. And I'm interested in talking to you about it. You wrote a terrific piece about the movie last week. And so maybe give listeners a little bit of background on the movie, which for many people, the story kind of starts with a trailer that was released, I think it was last April. Right. Well, Sega has been trying to make a version of Sonic the Hedgehog for the big screen for a number of years, and it looked like we were going to get it last April when they released the trailer for this movie. And what basically happened was everybody freaked out because of how the Sonic the Hedgehog character design looked. I mean, there was like comparisons to Nightmare Fuel. People were comparing it to something of H.G. Lovecraft. Uh, It was just like the design was all wrong. So there was like this huge internet backlash that made it look like the movie was really in trouble from the get-go. And now, does that seem unusual? Is there that kind of give and take between a Hollywood studio and one of its franchises and the audience that it's for? Yeah, I feel like we're seeing more of this now when you get this sort of instant reaction on uh, social media when marketing materials are released, right? I think when Disney first unveiled the Blue Genie from Will Smith, people were sort of unnerved by the look of that. But that movie ended up fine because Disney was basically just like, well, we made the movie we made and we're not changing anything. What was different this time was that Paramount actually went back to the drawing board on the design and redid the eyes, made them bigger, got rid of some of the weird human-like teeth on the on the little critter so that longtime fans would get on board with this movie. And then when the movie actually came out, it was a sort of a surprise success. It did much better than the studio was expecting. Yeah, much better. I think we were predicting somewhere around 45 for the opening weekend. It did 70, which is big not only for what you would expect for a Sonic the Hedgehog kids movie, but also very big for a video game adaptation type of movie, which is a genre that is, as you know, not done so great at the box office. So, like the history of Hollywood's basically littered with the corpses of these video game franchise adaptations. So, yeah, I think pretty much pretty happy about it. And then the movie actually even got uh, kind of better reviews than one would think. Yeah, I mean, I think I've seen this movie and it's definitely like for kids. Like, I don't think anyone who is not a parent or, you know, a, a child would go and see this movie. It's just not really geared toward sort of like the 30 year old millennial type who, you know, is just nostalgic about the 
video games and wants to see it come to life. It's definitely like for the kids, for sure. Even with the, you know, maybe especially with the Jim Carrey character as Dr. Robotnik, he's really like hamming it up in, as in sort of Ace Ventura mode. So maybe that appeals to adults, but still, I mean, it's definitely like a, a younger film. And now the director of the film, Jeff Fowler, has definitely found himself in kind of an unusual position, having with the sort of the initial response, trying to sort of retool the movie, you know, having this surprise success. What have kind of his responses been to this whole situation? Well, when I talked to him last week, I really wanted to know what it was like to wake up one morning and, you know, you, there's all this buildup for the trailer. People know that it's coming. And then you see the online responses and just like, how does it feel to have your stuff ripped apart online right away? And basically what he in the studio did was almost immediately decide that they had to do something for this look. And he tweeted out a couple days later that they were going back to redo the character and that changes were coming. And then they also paused for, you know, about three months. They delayed the movie by about three months to get it right. And did he seem okay with that? Did he seem upset? What did you feel like his take on what he'd gone through was? The direct quote from him was that he gave himself an hour or two to basically feel sorry for himself and lick his wounds after the internet backlash. And after that, it was basically a task of rallying the troops. You know, he's got to get his VFX coordinator and everybody to get to work on redoing this thing. And, you know, on top of that, you've got hundreds, if not thousands of VFX artists who have to also do a lot of work to get it done in time. And now the way in which the studio seems to have responded to the internet concern, and it's kind of come out ahead, this seems quite different from, let's say, what we all saw at the end of last year with Cats. That one, it felt like maybe the just the initial response was just too much, too much to, to recover from. I, it felt like they also rushed that one to the finish line a little bit. Like, they didn't move the release date, I don't think. They tried to get in and the director of that film was basically working until you know moments before the premiere to get the VFX looking right and then the movie comes out critics see it and then there's just tons of cat jokes i mean there's just it just snowballed into this into this big thing so it's really kind of it, it, the Cats and Sonic are just two very different outcomes for a somewhat similar situation. And do you think that the studios will learn some kind of a lesson there, that they kind of will listen to audiences more, or have, that trailers will become less of like, a, here's our new product, but more like, what do you think of our new product? It's almost like a little bit of like, <laughs> of it's almost like a focus group or something. I know, it would be so weird if trailer launches became more like just a broad-based internet focus testing ritual, rather than just like, here's our movie. But I guess with some of these franchises, there's so much on the line when you're making, you know, a $90 million visual effects powered film. And I mean, if you can win back the fans and you feel like you really need those fans, then why not? 
And now you mentioned that, uh, you know, a lot of studios have had a hard time in launching these video game-based movies that seem like they should be a sure thing. Why do you think it is that these, what seems like what Hollywood does now, these sort of franchise, IP, you know, a pre-existing idea that audiences already know. What is it about video game movies that makes it hard for studios to pull together? I mean, I think when you have, in the ones that you've seen struggle or ones that they've tried to, you know, the really hardcore gamer movies, like your Assassin's Creed, your Warcraft, stuff like that, stuff where the fans are really in it, you know? I feel like you can play Angry Birds and Pokemon as more of a novice, as more of an outsider, and it's more kid-oriented. And so maybe the degree of difficulty is just not as high with those type of movies, but when you've got something like Warcraft where you've got obsessive fans who are really immersed in the world, they're getting what they need from Warcraft in the video game. They don't need to see it like play out on a big screen. And so again, with Sonic, do you think the addition of Jim Carrey, like the, the fact that they kind of were able to create a little bit more to it, that that's where this success was? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you, you, you also get the sense that that really made it more palatable for parents whose kids are like wanting them to go see it. Like I was just out for... Uh, just shopping the other day and this like 10 year old kid out of nowhere brought up that he saw the Sonic the Hedgehog movie and I got to be like oh I saw it too it's like the first time in years that I've been able to relate to a child just in a random conversation is telling the parents you know in, in, in a few years you'll be able to show them uh, Ace Ventura movies from the 90s and they'll really understand what this is all about <laughs> well terrific Ryan thank you so much for joining us today to talk about Sonic the Hedgehog <laughs> Thanks. And now, switching gears, I'm joined by my colleague, Jen Yamato, to talk about the new Netflix film, To All the Boys, P.S. I Still Love You. Jen, thanks for being here. Oh my God, you said the title correctly. It's so long. I love it. Well, also, you do instinctively want to put a two in there somewhere. Yes. But it, there is no two. I've been writing the acronym T-A-T-B colon P-S-S. I-S-L-Y. At that point, are you saving any characters? Like, that seems like a very <laughs> long acronym. But So now this is the sequel to the popular 2018 film To All the Boys I Loved Before that was kind of a big hit on Netflix. It Huge. Kind of, and it, for a lot of different reasons, both sort of spotlighting the diversity, but you know, behind the camera and in front of the camera, and then also just the fact that it sort it's of kicked just, up their rom-com. Boom. And it's just a good story. This teenage romance high school rom-com it hits all of these emotional beats that you want in that kind of movie and the stars are so charming so of course you want more before we start talking about the new movie why do you kind of bring listeners up to speed on the earlier movie like what was it about guys to all the boys i loved before based on jenny han's best-selling ya that's young adult novels is about Laura Jean Song Covey, a girl in high school who's quiet. She's a dreamer. She's introverted. She fantasizes about, you know, romance. She'll never, like, actually take a leap to pursue herself in her own life. She reads romance novels, watches John Hughes' 80s teen movies, and they help form her idea of what love is. 
And so in the first movie, based on the first book by Jenny Han, Laura Jean finds that five of her love letters that she'd written years before have been sent out mysteriously to five of her old crushes. OMG, what's she going to do? Anyways, one of them, Peter Kavinsky, approaches her letter in hand with a proposition. That proposition is, why don't they pose as a fake couple to make his ex jealous so he can get his ex back and she can help avoid all the other crushes her love letters went out to. It's a brilliant, brilliant idea. And now you just wrote a story about the new film. You spoke to the star of the movie, Lana Condor, and the author, Jenny Han. And now it seems like it's unusual to me that a star and a writer seem to have struck up the kind of relationship they have. They seem to have grown very close. Oh, yeah. Well, that's that's totally why I wanted to talk to them together. It's because somewhere between the two of them, Jenny Han, this author, and Lana Condor, who's 22 years old now, but was, I think, 19 when she was first cast as Laura Jean, they together have, through through the book and through the screen, created this idea of this character for so many people. And I met with them when they were here. They don't live in the same city, but they FaceTime all the time. It's, like, really cute to see how genuine their friendship has developed over the course of bringing this character to life in now two films and counting, because they actually filmed two and three back-to-back. And now give me a little bit about what the new film is about. Like, where does the story go from where it left us last time? Well, Z-O-M-G, Mark Olson, in the second movie, Peter and Laura Jean are officially boyfriend and girlfriend. They go from being fake boyfriend and girlfriend to being real boyfriend Wait and girlfriend. Wait a second. I have to stop here and ask. You are maybe not quite the target demographic that one might assume Fair. for To All the Boys. What made you... Give it a shot. What made you, like, say, I need to watch To All the Boys, see what this is all about? People were all talking about it. Ah. And so it seemed like it was definitely worth checking out. Mm -hmm. And then also, I am a fan of the romantic comedies. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to see what this newfangled, contemporary, modern spin on the rom-com is like. Yeah. So the second movie is out now on streaming on Netflix. And it finds Laura Jean and Peter happily in what is her first relationship ever. However, the recipient of her fifth and final love letter from the first movie enters the picture. And his name is John Ambrose McLaren. And he is perfect. What does she do? It's actually, I think, a really interesting shift in maturity, in the emotional journey of this character, where she has to confront her idealized notions of what a relationship is, what love is, and really look inward and ask herself, what is right for me? And now, in your story, Jenny Han says that there is a lot of herself in Laura Jean. Mm -hmm. And so where did she say she kind of wanted to take the character with this this new film? Well, I think that Jenny Han, when you hear her speak about the character that she created, Laura Jean, and when you hear Lana Condor speak about the character, they both clearly have a lot of care for her mind and her body and her future. It's not just like some throwaway heroine who's going through some like, fantasy romance. There's a lot of, of introspection with this character, and both— Lana and Jenny are very aware that a huge part of their audience is very young. Young girls and boys who watch these movies and might, you know, learn from Laura Jean's journey. So 
I think it's interesting. Jenny says that there's a lot of her in Laura Jean, the character, in terms of the things she likes. And she sent a care package to Lana Condor when she was first cast in the role. And the care package was all things that Laura Jean would like. Korean face masks and stationery and very the very girly things that Laura Jean likes. But when you watch the movies, there's something called, I think, pensive baking that this character does when she's trying to work through a dilemma. She, like, bakes. And that's something that Jenny said is quite literally something taken from her own life that she does, that she did when she was trying to finish these books herself. And now, as you said, that these books and the movies have a, a pretty young audience. In the new film, they really try to, like, work in some... I don't want to say messages, but some supportive messages for that young audience. In particular, some scenes where Laura Jean and Peter are getting romantic, and Laura Jean sort of like draws some boundaries, and Peter really respects that. What did you think of that scene? It says about how charming both Lana and Noah are as performers. Noah Centineo. That they— Oh, yeah. It doesn't feel like— you're watching an after-school special or, like, you're watching some sort of a message scene. So they make it feel very natural and Mm -hmm. very real. And I think in particular, Lana just really, you get the conflicting emotions that she's going through of, like, obviously wanting to do these things, but then also wanting to not do them. Like, knowing herself, right? Like, knowing I'm not ready for this. I think that's actually a really grown-up thing to give that character. And a fantastic message for kids watching the Girls and boys. Yeah. Yeah. That was really uh, important to both Jenny and Lana when I spoke with them. We also talked about this new character, John Ambrose, which is funny. Like when uh, the first movie came out and Noah Centineo became a huge, huge star, like both he and Lana Condor became huge stars overnight because of these movies. People would call Noah Centineo, the actor, the internet's boyfriend. And so by the same token, the new actor who joins the cast this time, Jordan Fisher, who's a Broadway star currently on Dear Evan Hansen. He plays basically Laura Jean's dream boy. He's erudite. He's gentle. He's he's intelligent. He's totally into her also. And I think that's a really interesting juxtaposition of reality and fantasy in a different way. It prompts Laura Jean to, to again, ask herself, what is right for me? In this moment. But my favorite thing that I heard while talking about this movie was that Peter Kaminsky is the internet's boyfriend. John Ambrose is the one you marry, which is hard to argue with. Anyway, I have fun covering movies like this because I always loved movies like this. And it's nice to see that the rom-com has kind of re-flourished in cinema in ways that for a long time, the romantic comedy was totally dead. Totally dead. Another question for you. What are some of your favorite, all-time favorite rom-coms? Uh, well, I mean, I used to go back to some of the classics, you know, like, say, like, Holiday or The Awful Truth or His Girl Friday or... Classic bring, bring classics, a, yeah. Bring a Baby. But then more contemporary movies, I mean, you have something like Working Girl. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the entire sort of Nancy Myers, you know, oeuvre. So Grown-up rom-coms. Yeah. So, like, I mean, yeah. to me, It's Complicated is genuinely one of the best films <laughs> of the century. Like, I just really love It's Complicated. So that movie means a lot to me and I think is, like, in many ways, a great example of contemporary rom-com. You shouldn't forget James L. Brooks. I'm a big fan of How Do You Know, which I know is much maligned in some quarters, but I will not bear that this in the least. This makes so much sense to me because you are a grown-up person. And But all of those movies are fantastic for romance lovers, I think, as well. But I want to know what teenaged Mark 
was into? Well, I watched a lot of John Waters movies. <laughs> Romantic in their own ways. And I don't know, yeah, I don't know that Teen Mark watched a lot of rom-coms, although I'm going to parenthetically, I'll say I, I did watch a lot of Woody Allen movies, which played to me as rom-coms at the time, and now played to me in a much different way. One of my favorite movies still is this 80s movie, Some Kind of Wonderful. Also a, a high school movie. Mm -hmm. There's so many great 80s high school movies. There are a couple that are cited specifically in the To All the Boys movies, like 16 Candles and Adventures in Babysitting. I have to, I, have to, I want to talk about that particularly because I really enjoy so the So the new To All the Boys movie begins with the Crystals song, And Then He Kissed Me, which, you know, some heads will watch and think like, oh, why are they using the Goodfellas song? <laughs> And then they, in the scene, while the while Laura Jean is, like, dancing around her bedroom to the song, you realize that she has been watching on her computer the opening sequence and, in fact, recreating the choreography from the opening sequence of Adventures in Babysitting. So it's like, oh, no, don't come in here with your Goodfellas <laughs> business. We're talking about Adventures in Babysitting. <laughs> A classic. Yeah, there's so many in the 80s that directly dealt with high school. But what I really like about the To All the Boys movies is that they do feel contemporary. And one, one aspect you can see that in is the simple fact that this is an Asian-American teen rom-com heroine that is so unprecedented in a kind of sad way, but also a way that I think is easy to champion. Like, you see it so effortlessly. Laura Jean, the character, is half Korean and half Caucasian. And it's just a part of her life. In the first movie, her little sister Kitty gave Peter Kaminsky this little bottle of yogurt drink, Yakult. And that is something that is so culturally specific to Asian American kids. It's something that Jenny Han herself, the author, was self-conscious about as a kid. She loved Yakult. And when she would bring it to school, other kids would be like, ew, what is that? And she said that seeing Yakult, this very, very small detail, seeing it represented in the first film, and then the first film became so popular that sales of Yakult in real life skyrocketed, and people were like embracing it. This tiny detail, you know, but so specific not only to the character's Asian-American heritage, but also to Jenny Han's own heritage. She said that that was one of the, the most surprising and sort of special effects of the first film. And now also in the new film, there's a scene early in the movie where Laura Jean and her younger sister Kitty are wearing these traditional Korean dresses, the hangbok. And Jenny had something specific to say to you about That's that. That's right. I love that. I mean, it's it's in a Lunar New Year scene, right? Which is in a time of year when Laura Jean's family and she's lost her her mother. It's a big part of the books. It's a big part of the movies. And it's a big part of what has shaped her worldview and her feelings about relationships and love and romance. So it's it's a huge part of the story in this world. But she and Kitty get dressed up in traditional Korean hanbok for visiting their relatives for New Year's. And it's so beautiful. Jenny Han personally selected the fabric for those dresses from L.A. Koreatown shops, the, the famous shops in L.A., and it was important to her that it, they got it right. The other really, really, really fun tidbit that you might not realize when you're watching To All the Boys, P.S. I still love you, <laughs> is that in the scene when Laura Jean and Kitty go visit their grandparents, their grandparents are played by Jenny Han's own parents in real life. So that's kind of a special personal connection that she described. I do think it's interesting, this approach and inclusive storytelling, 
Jenny's thought was, essentially, to paraphrase, she hopes that this movie leads to more stories, more kinds of stories, stories where somebody's Asian heritage or their identity, whatever it be, is allowed to just be a normal part of their life, isn't the focus of the story. It isn't the cause of great grief or struggle, but is just part of it. I think that's an important conversation for creators to have and for audiences to engage with. There's this idea that the author of Yet Than Wen put forth called narrative plenitude. It's this idea that we need more stories. And what we're living in right now is an age of narrative scarcity. We don't have enough stories. So a lot of, I think, pressure gets put on the stories that do exist right now. But the ideal is to achieve narrative plenitude, where you have different kinds of stories representing a vast experience. And in the advertising for the movie, there is uh, Team Peter and Team John. Have you seen the billboards on Sunset Boulevard? (laughs) No, I I haven't, actually. I have not. (laughs) Okay, look, Netflix knows what they're doing. They erected three billboards along Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood. If you go drive down Sunset right now, you'll see these giant to all the boys billboards. And one is hashtag Team Peter. The other one is hashtag Team John for John Ambrose. And the last one is says something like, which team are you on? Which is very funny because obviously that totally worked in the marketing, if you'll recall, many moons ago for the major motion picture Twilight. It's an interesting way to drum up excitement for this. But then in your story, Jenny talks a little bit about are you a kitty, a Laura Jean, or a Margo, which is the three sisters mm-hmm. in the in the movie. The team boyfriends, I kind of understand. Picking a sister, I, maybe I wasn't something I necessarily like took from the movie, although I'll, I'll just cut you off and like answer your question ahead of time. I think I'm a kitty. <laughs> really? You don't think I'm, you're a Margo? No. Tell me why. Why do you identify with Kitty? Especially when I was younger, I was a little more irrepressible and like getting into business all the time. The same way that young (laughs) Kitty does. Would you mail out your older sister's secret love letters? I don't think so, but that... That dynamic never existed in my house. If so. you had to, I mean, there's kind of a pause there. If you don't know that you wouldn't do it, I think you maybe would do it. What do you think? What would you do? It's funny. That question, am I a kitty, a Laura Jean, or a Margo, is a question that Lana posed to Jenny when we sat down. And Jenny thought about it because it's a big question for them. You know, they live in this world. Uh, these characters mean a lot to them. And she eventually said, you're actually more of a Chris, which was actually a good answer Lana enjoyed. Chris is Laura Jean's best friend, who is the coolest. I would like to be one of one of those as well. You know, she doesn't care what people think. She sticks up for her friends. She ditches school to go eat Subway sandwiches. I mean, I, I, I relate. I relate to a lot of that. And the the movie also makes some some space for the sisters, their dad, played by John Corbett, that he gets to kind of have a little bit of a romantic subplot himself with like a new neighbor across the street. And you see the the girls dealing with their dad, a widower, trying to date, and they they're like okay with it, and like it doesn't. The movie still sort of acknowledges what that's going to mean emotionally to them. Yeah, I think that's actually a really nice part of these books and these these films is that it's not just. Laura Jean living in her own head, and that is everything. She kind of learns from every relationship she has. She learns from watching other people's relationships who are in her orbit as well, and that includes her dad. That storyline 
will continue to play a part in the third movie. So John Ambrose and Laura Jean volunteer at a senior living facility, and that gives way for a, a really fun character in the movie played by the mighty Holland Taylor, star of stage and screen. The legend Holland Taylor. And like, I don't... I still don't totally understand, like, her place in the story, but she's just so fun to have on screen. She's so fun in the movie that it's, like, an exciting character for them to have added. I kind of love seeing Holland Taylor impart wisdom, great dame wisdom, to someone like Laura Jean. So that's a character that is also in the books, but slightly different in the adaptation, which is written by Sofia Alvarez and J. Mills Goodlow. Jenny Han is actually exec producer on these movies and had more of a creative role, it sounds like, in the second and upcoming third movie. The third movie I'm actually really excited for. It's already done, I believe, and it was partly shot in Korea, which is fun. And now you mentioned that the movie is a Netflix release. Can you talk a little bit about what you think that means for these movies? I mean, they've really not gotten conventional theatrical releases. They've been, you know, they say big hits on the streaming platform. Is there something about these movies that are particularly like Netflixy? Like, do you think they play well on the site for a reason? I can't speak to why Netflix does anything, including not being transparent with their viewing numbers. But I will say, I feel like when, when movies like this come along for Netflix and they make it a thing, you feel it. You feel it on social media. That's also anecdotally how a lot of filmmakers have told me they see actual the actual cultural impact of their films. Filmmakers, of course, get access to their own viewing data that is private from Netflix. But in terms of anecdotally, I feel like you you can see so many people talking about to all the boys. You saw when the first movie came out. You see it now when, when girls and women are having to all the boys two viewing parties and posting about it on socials. So I don't know. It's it's interesting because that's one of those questions that we may not really know. Is like, how does this being released on Netflix change what impact it has? But I, I think at least we can see that the audience that is engaging socially with this movie and like obsessing over the teams, the hashtag teams, and obsessing over Laura Jean and these movies, they're very vocal. So you see it, and that's kind of that's kind of cute, at least. I find it tough that I find the Netflix releases, even in their most positive form, they churn quite quickly. They turn over very quickly. So, like, we're having this conversation when the movie's been out for, like, a, about a week and a half. It'll be out for about two weeks by the time this episode airs. Is that too lo- long? Like, will the window have closed on to all the boys? Well, I don't know. That's a, that's a good question because, I mean, the first weekend that, to All the Boys came out, which, you know, smartly was dated for basically Valentine's Day, uh, the Valentine's Day streaming release. The first weekend, we had a lot of readers reading about To All the Boys on our LA Times site. Will they still be obsessing over To All the Boys by the time this episode comes out? Maybe. Maybe people will hear about it, and if they haven't seen it, they put it off. They'll get around to watching it, which I think does happen a lot with Netflix when you know it's there. But that's why I think you need to spread the gospel, Mark. Mark Olson, LA Times number one to all the boys fan. Well, now now you make it into a competition. <laughs> I don't think I can beat you on this front. Here's my confession. I watched to all the boys last year. I watched to all the boys too, obviously, to write about the film and interviewed Jenny Han and Lana Condor. But when it came out officially on Netflix, I did rewatch it by myself 
on the couch alone one night with a bottle of wine, and I had a great time. And then immediately, it was late by the time it ended, immediately I put on the first movie again, and I rewatched the first movie again. And I have no regrets, and I will not apologize for it, and I might do it again someday. Who knows? (laughs) And uh, I always think it's smart to wrap things up on a no regrets. (laughs) So, Jen Yamato, thank you so much for being here to talk about, I'm going to get it, to all the boys, P.S. I still love you. Thank you for having me on, Mark. This has been a very special time. I've learned a lot about you. <laughs> That's it for this week's show. Thanks to our producer, Paige Heimson, and our audio engineer, Mike Heflin. Subscribe to The Real on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. You can also visit us at latimes.com forward slash The Real. 